So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in in Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we're continuing a series that we started a number of weeks ago. In fact, you can pat yourself on the back. You just made it through a fourth of the way of the series because we just finished chapter 1 of Philippians. And uh, we've been in this series called Transcend, and we're walking through Paul's letter, Paul's writings to a group of people in in Philippi, the church there. And this is a group of people that he has a deep connection with uh, because he was there at the start of the church but also because they partner with him over the years. And as Paul suffers in prison and he's writing, they're suffering from persecution outside of prison in in Philippi. So he's writing to a group of people that need encouragement, that need understanding for difficult times. And so when he gets to chapter 2, we'll talk, actually it's kind of a two-part series of, in the bigger series, this week and next week, we're going to talk about unity. And now when I say unity, in fact, someone asked me earlier today, like, what's the message on today? I said unity, and I could see it in their face like, oh, not connecting. I'm not too excited. Can we talk about sex or money or something controversial? You know, that's, that's the feel I got. It's like, no, we're going to talk about good old unity. Yeah. But unity is something that you and I don't understand because it has to do with everything that we do individually and what we do corporately as a church. It has to do with this concept of unity. And so, Paul, we're going to just only look at two verses this week and then we'll look at more next week. But this concept of unity is so important because it affects the way that we are effective in what God has called us to be and to do as a church body. So because all of us have to be a part of this thing called church, all of us are, have to participate at some level in working side by side, getting along with people who are different than us for ultimately God's purpose in our lives and God's purpose in the world. There's something about working together that is different than we, as we work individually or working against each other. So let me put it in this context. When I was a kid, my grandparents had a, a, a above-ground pool. Remember the doughboy pools, the round, you know, ones you put in your background? That's the, for the people who couldn't afford the, the real pool. You know, you got the cheap pool, and you're like, eh, it works. Not quite the same, but yeah, I get the point. So we had a couple rules. One of the rules about the, the pool is when all the cousins would get in, we were not allowed to make waves. So what we would do is, if we really were wanted to have fun, we'd all get in the middle, we'd go up and down together, and then the water would go up and down, and then it would start splashing over. And then if you really did it, it was bad. It'd start ripping the lining of the, of the pool, and then some of the, the, the joints would come apart, and it was, it was fun until it got broke, and then the party was over, right? So we weren't allowed to do that. But one thing we were allowed to do is we were allowed to create a whirlpool. Anybody ever done that? It's the funnest thing. You just start going around in a circle, and everybody, you know, in the, in goes. And, and before you know it, the, the momentum of the water as it starts, around, you, you no longer have to push. You literally just lift your feet, and you float around the pool. Now, it was always fun, except when we, all of our cousins would get in the pool, there was always like one or two people who were lame. It just, I mean, they really, it was like, I don't want to do that. We do it all the time. It's no fun. You're like, just do it. But like, no, I don't want to do it. We had to get everybody to do it because if two or three people didn't want to do it, they would just stand there, and they would literally work against the current. They weren't going with the flow, and so we'd have to, like, talk them into it, promise them something, and eventually they would do it. And we would all, we would all do it. Literally, we could get the pool going so that you could float around for a good five to seven minutes without any work at all. And then when it would start to slow down, everybody starts working again. But it was the funnest thing. We would literally do that for hours. It was so much fun. But it required everybody to be on the same page, moving in the same direction so that we could do that. And it only took one or two people to prevent us from doing what we wanted to do. The same thing is true for the church. You think, oh, you know, the majority rules, and as long as the majority of people are doing it, I don't have to really be about unity. Everybody else can do that. I can do my own thing. It doesn't work that way. So Paul writes this, and we're going to look at a number of verses. Let me just read the couple of verses we're going to focus on today and talk about two things. The pathway or the journey that kind of gets us to unity, and then once we get to the destination, what it's actually supposed to look like. So Paul says this, verse 1 of Philippians 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord of one, and of, of one mind. So I want to stop there, and we're going to look at verse 1 to start. And here's the thing about the way Paul's writing this, okay? He's making statements that he's kind of saying like, well, if this is true, but it's almost like tongue-in-cheek, almost like rhetorical, like really what he's saying is since this is true, then this should be the outcome. He's not taking guesses to see, yeah, I, maybe this might be true of you. He's saying, since this has been going on in your life, you need to understand what he's saying the sense is about, a sense that you know Jesus. Because you know Jesus, you are the recipient of these things in your life. And if you're the recipient of these things in your life, it will contribute to the way that you connect to others around you. So really what he's making statements, he's making statements that are factual, that are true. And so he's reminding us. So really, when, when we look at this, it's almost instead of the word if, it's the word since. Because already is true, this is true. So when we look at those, those, these four statements in, ver, in verse 1, there's four things that talk about this pathway to unity. And the first one is this. How do you and I create or experience unity amongst relationships within the body of Christ within the church? The first thing is this thing called courage. So Paul says, since you have, he says, you have encouragement from what? Being united with Christ. So you are encouraged, which means it's the opposite of what? Discouraged. What, is, what does that look like? So when somebody has courage, they believe that God can do things through their life that they could not see happen on their own. So they step into that and move into that. What happens when somebody's discouraged? They don't believe anything's going to change. They don't believe that they can advance. They don't believe that God can do that. What? They're discouraged. So someone can be encouraged or discouraged. And usually those two things come from the outside in. And that means you and I have to think about this. Every single day of our lives, we have the capacity to either encourage or discourage people by our actions and our words. Now, many times we don't even think about what we do. We don't think about what, what we, what's going to happen when I say this or, or how someone's going to respond when I do this. Any parents in the room right now? You ever notice how much influence you have over your children and sometimes it's not in the right direction? If you're a, a real parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That you've made decisions, you've said things in your life that, that you didn't realize actually were a discouragement to your child, which is something you would have never intentionally done, but because they watch and they hear everything, they pick up on everything. I think I might have shared this before when Courtney was, was pretty small. I can't remember how old she was, but we had taken a family trip to Knott's Berry Farm. I love roller coasters. I just hate straight vertical drops, okay? And I know this, like, well, aren't they the same? No, they're not. You take me to Six Flags, I will go on Goliath, but I will not touch Lex Luthor, okay? I'm not dropping 420 feet straight down. Just not doing it, okay? I'm choosing not to do that. But I will go on Goliath. So when we were at Knott's Berry Farm, Knott's Berry Farm has their version of Lex, Lex Luthor, which is a little shorter, but still very terrifying. It's called Supreme Scream. It's 255 feet, and it's not enough to drop you and just let gravity take over. They actually accelerate you towards the ground just to make it a little more scary. So we were, we were at that ride, and I'm like, I'm already, Kim already knows me. I'm opting out right away. I'm like, you guys go and have fun. I will watch you, okay? Supreme scream. There's a reason it's called scream, okay? So we're standing there, and we're just looking up at it, and Courtney's standing right next to me. And we're looking at it, and Kim's getting ready to go on the ride. Jordan was too young to go on the ride, and and so I'm looking up, I'm like, Courtney, that's pretty tall. And she goes, yeah, that's pretty tall. That, that looks like a fun ride. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> and she goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, look how tall that is. She goes, yeah, it's really up there. I said, can you imagine? You get up there, you can see forever. I said, but you get up there, you got to come down. I said, literally, I mean, it's going to drop. I mean, it's going to come straight down. I mean, it looks tall from here. When you get up there, you know how tall that thing's going to be? It's going to scare you to death. This is me projecting my fear under my daughter. And so as, after this three-minute conversation is over, she's looking up. She's like, yeah, Dad, that's really tall up there. 
I said, he goes, she goes, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to go on that. That, that kind of scares me. She goes, yeah, Dad, I think I'm with you. I don't think I'm going to go on this ride. We'll let Mom go on this ride. <laughs> and at the moment, I'm like, well, at least I have someone to be afraid with, my daughter. <laughs> but afterwards, I thought, what did I do? I sucked the courage right out of her. I discouraged her. Now, she has since recovered, and she's as crazy as her mom, and she'll go on anything, any ride. There's nothing, no limit to what she'll do. In fact, I did recover as a parent. I didn't say this first service, but I thought she'd know. So I, I didn't get Courtney to go on Supreme Screen, but I did get her to get on a plane and go to Haiti with me a few years ago, which led to now her being in Kenya, just getting back from Kenya, which, by the way, which is sad for me because I probably won't see my daughter the rest of her life much of the time because she'll be some other country but because she's not afraid to do anything now. But think about that in terms of the people who are around you every day. Think about the people in the church who you either have the ability to encourage or discourage. And if the journey to unity means that I'm coming alongside somebody and saying, you can do this. God can do this in you. That's the courage that God gives us. There's a second thing that Paul talks about in verse 1, and that is this thing called comfort. He says, since you have comfort from his love, you've been comforted by God's love. In your moment of need, in your moment, moment of struggle, God's love comes into your life and demonstrates to you that you can be at peace and that you can have comfort and that you can move forward. Now, the word comfort actually has to do with what Paul, the word Paul uses here is when you come alongside somebody and almost whisper into their ear something of encouragement. When you come alongside of them and you bring comfort in a very difficult moment in their life. That's what this comfort looks like. And so it's kind of coming alongside. And it's, it's, it's the, in fact, the, the, there's an English translation of the word we use to describe the Holy Spirit as what? A comforter. Who what? Who comes alongside to help you in a difficult season of your life. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what builds unity. When we see somebody struggling, and instead of leaving them on their own to struggle and figure this out, we come alongside them and we put our arm around and say, hey, you're going to get through this. And the reason you're going to get through this is because I'm going to walk through it with you. You don't just say it from a distance. You get right next to somebody and you say, hey, listen, you're going to do this. We're going to make this together. Because what brings comfort to somebody who's isolation is if somebody is alongside them and is with them. We need each other. So I want you to take a, a look at this is kind of a little montage or a, little, a couple clips put together of the, the, the finish of the women's Dallas Women's Marathon last year. And I want you to see the dynamic between two women in the race and how one helped the other, which is a great picture of what we're supposed to do in the church. So take a look at this. This is just class right here by both of them. Oh, Another boy. fall. Oh, we just all want her to just get there. She's given everything she possibly has to get to this finish line. She is literally, from where we sit, we can oh, see she's less than 50 yards from the finish. Sold a phenomenal athlete and triathlete, great runner. She's just uh, willing herself there. Uh, and this is, this is our winner, ladies and gentlemen. This is not normally what you expect to see at the finish of a marathon. But Chandler Self has run herself to complete exhaustion, and she is so brave. This is incredible. And she's running fast. Remember, she's 30 minutes ahead or slower than what the time is because she started earlier. She is still going to run the marathon in under two hours and 54 minutes. The only thing that I could think of to do was to pick her up. So I picked her up, and I think she was a little confused at first. Um, but no way was, she, was I just going to start sprinting and leave her there. So um, I picked her up. We started jogging a little bit, and she just kept collapsing like every, every few feet. And you saw that those last 20 meters. She was just down, and I was so worried she was not going to make it. So I picked her up with like all my might, 
and um, right when we got to the finish line, I just kind of pushed her in front of me so she would be the one to cross that line. And she grabbed the tape and she held it up and she fell across the finish line and she, she did it. From the moment she came up next to me at mile 24, she was just like, hey, I'm here to help you. Let's do this. Let's rock this. You know, she was like, you've got this. Um, this is yours. And you know what else she said? She told me, she goes, you deserve this. And I thought, Wow. Um, she was wise beyond her years, like big time. Um, so sweet, so encouraging, um, and knew that I needed to, and kind of knew what I needed to hear. Um, and there was one point where I started falling back behind her, and she was like, "Nope, come on, girl, let's go." I love that. Let's let's do this. I mean. That's, that's the picture, and how many times, you may not have been running a marathon, but how many times have you watched somebody else struggle? And all they need to get them through their struggle is somebody just to come alongside them and say, hey, we're going to do this together. We're going to do this. Maybe you've been on the other end when you've received that. Someone's come along in a difficult time of your life and said, hey, you can do this. We're going to do this. That's what builds unity because then we're there in, the, in the, the most difficult moments of each other's lives. We're supporting each other. The third thing that Paul mentions in verse 1 is the concept of connection where he says this phrase. He says participation, that since you've had participation or fellowship in the Spirit, what's Paul referring to? He's saying, listen. Because you all have the same spirit living in you, you've said yes to Jesus, God has deposited his spirit in you, you have a bond that is stronger than anything in the world. You have this participation in God's spirit in you. And this is significant because that is a bond that is stronger and more powerful than anything else that would either separate us or even bring us together. This bond, that means that, that people around the world, people in every tongue, tribe, and nation have the same spirit living inside of them. Every people, all the people who come from different backgrounds, we all have this deep bond and this connection because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, which draws us into unity. Now, you would hope that that would be all that would take. You mean the supernatural spirit of God living inside of us? I can get along with anybody. I don't always get along with everybody, do we? We don't do that, do we? But there's something inside of us that has to be reminded that we have a bond. It's a connection, whether you know it or not. You and I are on the same team, which sometimes we have to be reminded of. But, you know, we see this kind of bond in a much kind of more practical situation. If anybody been to a, a large sporting event, a large venue like Dodger Stadium or Staples Center or the Coliseum, something big, and you go, so let's just say Dodger Stadium. You go to Dodger Stadium, you're a Dodger fan, okay? You walk in, and on a day there's a sellout, there's going to be about 55,000 people in the stands. The majority of them are going to be Dodger fans. Every once in a while, you'll get a, a rare kind of Diamondback fan like Lauren Thornycroft, and we'll pray for her, that will scream for her team. So <clears throat> I, I did it first, so I have to do it second. I know I'll catch it later anyway. But so you're sitting there, and for the most part, most, I mean, you came with one or two or three, or maybe you had a group of people, so you know a few people, but the majority of people in that stadium are absolute strangers to you. You've never seen them in your life. You've never talked to them. You may never see them again. But suddenly, for the next two and a half hours, they become your best friends. If you've been, somebody hits a home run, and the person sitting behind you that you've never talked to, never seen before, you turn around and you give them a high five. Why? Because they're wearing blue, right? And then someone else hits a home run, and you might get as crazy as hug somebody you never know why, because they're wearing a Dodger hat, right? Why? Because we're all on the same team, and at least for two and a half hours, we're all friends. 55,000 of your closest friends packed in, what, to root for the team that you're rooting for. What's your bond? It's what the jersey you wear on the outside of your, your, on the outside, or the hat that you're wearing, or the color you're wearing. What automatically, it creates this bond between everybody else in the stadium. 
What's more powerful than what you wear on the outside is what's written on the inside. God's Spirit lives inside of us. And that means when we discover there's other people who know Jesus, then automatically there is a bond and an obligation and an interest and a concern for them. Why? Because the same Spirit lives inside them. They're on my team. And sometimes you run into people and you go, I wish you weren't on my team, but because God's Spirit is in them, they're on your team. There's this bond that's connected. Paul's writing to a group of people, remember, who's being, who are being persecuted. They have to be reminded not to turn on each other, but actually to work with each other in the midst of what they're struggling through. And then there, there's a final thing that Paul mentions about this pathway or journey that gets us to unity, and that's the last part of verse uh, 1, and that's this concept of concern. He says, since you have what? You have affection and sympathy, that you actually have an affection for somebody and you, you sympathize with what they're going through. There is a genuine concern that you have about other people, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that you care deeply for them, that you will do things for them. That builds unity. What builds disunity is when you and I don't care about what anybody else is going through. But what happens, and I think that's part of God's spirit living inside of us, is that there's something that comes about becoming human and compassionate and caring for other people, that the spirit of God rises up inside of us and gives us concern for other people around us. This is what happened. In fact, this is part of what it means to be Antioch Church, is that, that God's spirit stirs inside of us and looks at the needs of other people and chooses to say, that need is more important than my need, and therefore I'm going to help support that person. This happened a couple thousand years ago at the first church at Antioch where, where they realized that their brothers and sisters in Judea were about to go through a famine. They were gonna, some of them were going to starve to death. So even though they didn't have a lot of money, they took it upon themselves to say, I'm going to give so that they don't starve. And so they did. They took up an offering and they actually helped support brothers and sisters outside their area to survive a famine. That's in the DNA of what it means to be Antioch. That's in our DNA, that we have a genuine concern and we see the difficulties and the struggles of people around us, which builds this unity. This is one of the most beautiful things I think our church has done. This is where I say our church gets an A+. Is that we not only have done that in our church, I've watched us do that, but we've done it outside of our church. Apollo High School is a perfect example of what it looks like when the church and schools come together in unity. So we played that, that Apollo video a couple times, and usually twice a year we've been giving to Apollo gift card, through gift cards for the last four years. And so when we did that video, you saw a couple of students who graduated and what it meant for them, and knowing that a lot of the, the people, the students going to Apollo are struggling with poverty, some of them are homeless, and so even a gift card, it makes a world of difference to them. And so this last time when we did this, we played that video. Normally, we, 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 it's about $800 to $1,000 worth of gift cards in the fall and then in the winter that goes to Apollo. You know how much we just gave? John Looney just took it over this week. $2,100 worth of gift cards went to Apollo High School this last week. In fact, when, when John gave it to Karen Smith, the office manager there who facilitates all this, this is what she said. This will last us a whole year, so don't do it again until next year. That's what she said. This is, this is all, talk about overflow. This is more than they can even use. That's us. That's Antioch Church. That's having a genuine concern for somebody else who's struggling and reaching out to help them. That builds unity between a public school and a church where everybody cries, the separation of church and state. Forget it. We're all human. 
And that's what the church is supposed to look like. And that's what partnership looks like. So, so ultimately, that's, that's the journey that gets us to unity. But once we get there, what are the things that occur? What can we look at and say, this is the evidence of unity? Paul goes on in verse, in verse 2. The destination looks like this. First thing in verse 2 is being on the same page together. So Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Does Paul say you have to think exactly the same thing? No, he's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. He doesn't say you have to be identical, but to be on the same page. So maybe you've experienced this, particularly at the college level, if you've been in college. and So you, you buy a textbook, and you have assigned reading in that textbook. And the professor tells you what to read, but there's a problem if you're, you go the cheap route sometimes, and that is that textbooks have additions to them. And so you're like, man... I can get a great deal on edition 7 of my textbook, even though the professor is using edition 10. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so you get the assigned reading, and you go to read it, only to discover you're reading the wrong pages. It may be the right pages, but the content on those pages is different than edition 10. So you're convinced you're on the same page, and you may no be numerically on the same page, but content, you're not even anywhere close where the rest of the class is. And sometimes in the church, this is exactly what we do. Oh, I'm on the same page, and you never bother to check if you're on the same page. Because you think, I got the page number tonight, but whatever content that you've gleaned from that page is not the right content. How does that work? We know, we have a textbook. I hate to use the term textbook, but we all have a book. We all share it. It's all in common. Anybody know what it's called? The Bible. Yeah, and don't, by the way, don't compare page numbers because you'll get really confused in the Bible because we've added in all the structure of the Bible to help us to kind of find things, but there wasn't a whole lot of structure. It's just narrative and text is what was there originally. But if you and I were actually on the same page because we all have something in common called the Bible, we actually might more look more unified than we actually are. It's, it's amazing, even though we have the same spirit living inside of us, we're worshiping the same God in who Jesus is, and yet we read the Bible and we end up with... 40,000 different denominations in the world today. How in the world does that happen? Oh, but we're reading on the same page. No, we're not. No, why? Because all of us come to the Bible with these notions that we understand it and we're going to interpret it, and our interpretation is the right interpretation without comparing it and talking in humility to other people who read the same page and find out, what did you understand about that? The worst question you can ask when you approach the Bible is, what does it mean to me? Oh, that's death to interpretation. You know why? Because it wasn't written to you. What do we have to, we, we did a Bible series about a year ago, which by the way, I'm, I didn't want to call her, but Megan Forbes is here, who was our youth pastor, and she's moved on, but she's come back to visit. Don't want to embarrass you, but I had to. I had to, because I know this is, this, Megan and I had long discussions about the way we approach Scripture, and she had a message, which by the way was excellent about how we, what we bring to the Scripture. But we can't just ask the question, what does it mean to me? Why? Because you have to ask, what did it mean to them first? So when we read this, we have to ask, what did it mean to the church at Philippi? Because that's who it was written to. Then we can take a step back, and even the next question isn't, what does it mean to me? Then we have to ask the question, what does it mean to us, collectively? Because we all have the same spirit in us. And then we can work our way to, what does that look like for my life? We have a book. We have to be on the same page moving forward, because it's important for us to experience that together and moving forward. Second thing Paul says in verse 2 is this next phrase, having the same love. So same mind, same love, which is placing the same value on everyone. 
It's not just the same love that I have because we all have love, but it's the same level of love that I have for everyone across the board. That's different. I can say that I love everybody, but I can't say I love everybody the same amount. Because one of the things that we do that God doesn't want us to do is that we play favorites. Paul wasn't playing favorites. The same love means that I choose to love everybody, even the people that are difficult, even the people that are different than me. Why? Because that's the way God loves. God doesn't love on levels. God doesn't play favorites. God loves all people. And that's what we're supposed to do across the board. And if we don't do that, then what happens is that we set up a structure in the church where there are the people who are really lovable, and then there's the people who are tolerable. But God says that we're supposed to, to love everybody. In fact, this is so important. What Paul's writing here is so important because it's unbelievable. If you read through the book of Acts, you, you hit Acts 1 where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He ascends back to the Father. Acts 2, the explosion of the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit comes. And so you're in chapter 2 and this amazing thing and thousands of people come to know Jesus that day. And then the church starts to get rolling. You get to chapter 6 and we've already got problems. Four chapters and they're already screwing this thing up, right? What happens? There's a problem in the distribution of food to the widows. There's a hierarchy. There's, there's favorites already. And so somehow in the distribution of food to the widows, the Jews are getting priority over the Greeks. And so because of that, the Greeks say, hey, this is not fair. And most of us think, okay, well, let's just set up a structure and deal with this. And okay, everybody make sure it's fair. Just get over yourself, Greeks. We're going to get you food, blah, 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 right? It's, no, no, no. This is a huge deal in the church. How big a deal was it? It was a fracture in the unity already. So what do they do? They pray and they appoint people. And one of the qualifications for appointing them is that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're like, you're talking about benevolence. You're talking about handing out food. Why do you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do that? Because it's a supernatural endeavor to do that. To not only distribute food, but to do it in a way that everybody's loved equally. So if you remember the story, there's a number that are appointed. One of them is, one of them is his name is Stephen. Acts chapter 6, then you get to Acts chapter 7, what happens? This guy, who was set aside to do the most courageous thing of making sure widows got the right amount of food, ends up preaching one of the most powerful sermons in all of Scripture and ends up being stoned at the end of it. The only person in all of Scripture who looked to the heavens and saw Jesus giving a standing ovation is a guy who was committed to what? Loving equally. This is a huge deal, and that's why we have to ask this question. Because here's the reality. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he says the last shall be what? First. What is that? Equality. So we have to ask the question, and we have to be honest with ourselves. Who's at the last? Who's at the end of my line? Who goes last in my life? Because we all have that. And then it, we have to understand that God says, listen, the last person has to be the first, which means you have to equal the playing field. There can't be favorites. And if there's true unity, there isn't the haves and the have-nots. There isn't the favorites and the unfavorites. There's only people who are loved equally. That is an outcome of love. That is an outcome of unity. And it's something that the world is dying for. And we're supposed to be the people they look to for it, is that we actually love each other third thing that Paul mentions, and that is this in, in verse 2. This destination of unity looks like this. It's maintaining the same bond with each other. So Paul uses a phrase. He says, being in what full accord, which means actually being bonded together because there's more power in being multiplied than there is in being alone and isolated. But we, we if you were here last week, I talked about 
our tendency in struggles and pain and suffering is to what? Is to isolate ourselves, which is exactly where the enemy wants us to be. That's where he does his best work. But there, the unity brings about a bond in us that creates a strength that we are stronger together than we are apart. And I know that sounds, oh, it's a nice cliche, Pastor. No, but it's true. You cannot be as powerful and strong on your own as you can be when you're in uni- unity with each other. We can't. It's the way God's designed it. There has to be a bond together. In fact, so you take it this way. So if you take a thread and you say you have a spool of thread and you undo that thread, you can probably wrap the thread around your fingers and you can easily pretty much pull and snap the thread because it, it's, it's pretty thin. It's not very strong. Most people can do that. But if you take a little piece of string, which is a bunch of thread that is actually, what, bound together, depending on the string, you probably wrapped around your hands, you could probably snap the string pretty easily. Maybe some take a little more effort than others. But if you took rope or a cord that is thread that's bound to be string and string that's bound to be a cord or a rope, and then you do the same thing, most people, unless you're superhuman or you're Mr. or Mrs. Universe, you can't break that rope by yourself. You can pull on it, you can try to stretch it, but it's not going to snap. Why? Because the, the, the process of being bound together in one accord creates power. That's what the church is supposed to look like. Why is Paul saying this? Because there's a group of people he's writing to that everything in their culture, in their lives, is trying to tear them apart. And he's saying to them, you have to have one accord. You have to be bound together because every from the, everything from the outside is going to try to tear you down and tear you apart, and you have to be bound together. And this is so important because we have a tendency to, to not realize that everything in our lives, almost everything in our lives, even good things, can come and tear at us and tear away from our bond with each other. Listen to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Wisdom from thousands of years ago. But let me just take a moment to talk about what this looks like because I'm convinced that what, what brings disunity and separation is far more innocent than you and I would think. This is just one example of how this happens in the church, how we become fragmented and not unified. No, I'm, hear me, I'm going to give you an example, but this isn't in totality everything about what brings disunity, but it starts very subtly. So, statistics. So, probably about 20 or 30 years ago, the average, and this is, this is what people who would be considered church members, committed Christians, followers of Jesus, about 20 or 30 years ago, the average American Christian attended church usually every week. Four, so, four Sundays, four times a month, they're in church. Probably about 10, 15 years ago, that started to change. And now the average committed, like, I'm all in, I'm a member, I'm serving, I'm a part of it, would attend three, three Sundays or three times a month. And then, about 10 years ago, and now actually to present day, the average American Christian goes to church twice a month. And that is given the label of Committed. Now, the reason I say that, because I'm not preaching to you because you're here. It's the other half that's not here that we're preaching to you right now. So I told first service, we actually have four churches. The every other week in each service, right? Next week, it'll be a whole other group of people coming to second service. I'm lying, okay? Please forgive me. But the point is this. How does that happen? So let's just go back into the historical context here. 
if you're being persecuted for your faith and you associating with other Christians could actually put you in jeopardy, not only your life, but your livelihood, your family, you might think twice before you attend church, wouldn't you? But now if you're in a culture, fast forward 2,000 years to now, you're in a culture where you freely can go to church every Sunday. No one says you can't. No one restricts you. The government doesn't keep you from doing that. Nothing's put on the line. So what do you do now? You become distracted. This is our culture. Why? Because church used to be a value because there was a bond that the church had with itself that, yeah, we're all in this together. And then something comes along that distracts you. Now hear me. I'm not talking about illness. And I'm not talking about uh, things that, a death in the family, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about vacations and sleeping in and basketball and football and convenience and all those kind of things. Those start creeping in, and before you know it, you miss a week, and then you miss another week, and then you, and the reason I know this is because I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen this happen, and so what happens is not that church attendance makes you unified, but what happens is that's the beginning of the slide downward that pulls you back from being connected and committed because if you don't want to show up on Sunday or, on, or to a community group or to wherever where there's community, then you, it's far easier to pull back from anything else in your life that's connected to God. It happens. And so it comes very subtly in our lives. Like, ah, one Sunday to the next. What does it really matter when people around the world you know what church attendance in China looks like? You've heard me talk about this. They don't miss Sundays if they can get to church safely. I talked with our area missionary in Foursquare who oversees Asia right now, and she's telling me China's getting really bad again. It's happening again. They're cracking down. But I'll tell you what, they will find their way at, at their own peril to go connect with other believers. Why? Because it's the bond that they have. So why do I say all that? Just think twice before... You say, ah, you know what? I don't really need to be here for that. I can, you know, I can, I can, I can next Sunday. I can, you know, I can go online because, you know, everything's on YouTube, and yet maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Maybe it makes the option too easy because this is a church, face-to-face. -face. No offense to anybody who's doing online church, but that's not really church because you can't really see each other. You can't know each other unless you're connected to each other. And then the final thing is this. The destination of unity looks like embracing the same direction together. So Paul ends with a similar phrase as he began with. He says, he said, they're the same mind, but he says, of one mind, which again is the concept of unity. But this is one mind, and as Paul will talk, is it's, it's about what happens when you and I are unified and what God can accomplish through us. Is it, isn't it enough for us to all get in one room and get along with each other and say, hey, we all really love each other. That's wonderful. But the church has a purpose. Jesus has a mission in the world. And part of that mission requires that unity is a part of it so that we can do this together. Because the, 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 the mission and the, the, what Jesus has called us to is absolutely impossible by ourselves. Jesus, Jesus commissioned to the church the only organism or organization that he left on the planet is this thing called the church. And he says, oh, why? by the way, go do this really easy thing. Go what? Go make disciples, which means help people to see me, understand me, know me, and follow me and become like me. Uh, and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That is so easy, isn't it? We've been struggling for 2,000 years to do this because in order for that to be accomplished, we have to do it together. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus if you don't do it together because that's part of, that's why the New Testament over and over talks about how we relate to one another. That's an evidence of that. 
Why is this so significant? Because you and I cannot accomplish the purpose that God has given us for our lives and for the church if we are not working together. Can't do it. Put it this way. So let's say that you, you know, you see that like, lack of a better kind of idea, but Budweiser has the Clydesdales, right? And they're in parades. They show up at the Super Bowl. And so you get Clydesdales. You get eight Clydesdales, and those are beasts of horse, and they can pull tons of weight together. Obviously, we know that they can collectively pull more weight than they can individually. But what if one day one of the Clydesdales or two of them wake up and they say, you know, I'm not feeling it today. I know that they want me to go this direction, but I think I want to go a different direction. So two out of the eight decide to go their own way. How's it going to work for the other six? Well, the six are strong. They can compensate. No, they can't. If two decide to go off on their own, they're not getting anywhere fast. But maybe it's not that they're, they're going a different direction. Maybe it's that they're not wanting to go at all. It's a bad day for the Clydesdale. And, you know, number two in line and number four in line think, I'm tired. I just don't know if I can do this. So, you know, I think I'm just going to take the day off. So what do they do? They just don't do anything. So well, the other six are strong. They can pull them along. No, 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 no. No, those two horses, just because of their dead weight, they're going to take those six and they're going to pull them down with them. So they won't go anywhere. So by the way, this is not about beer, if that's what you think this is about, okay? This is about the horses. But I want you to understand that because that's the same thing you and I do in the church. It's not that necessarily we're going a different direction, it's just that we're going in no direction at all. And we're expecting everybody else to go in that direction, and we'll catch up eventually, but we'll just let them pull me along like the whirlpool in the pool. The church doesn't work that way. Did you know the church was never meant to be a proposition where it was majority rules? The church was meant to be 100%. And sometimes we got this idea, another statistic. Did you know that they, they call churches successful in mobilizing people to serve when they get 50% of their people in the church to serve in some capacity? And we go, woohoo, 50%. Are you kidding me? That means half of the people in the church are not engaged in moving forward together. They're consumers or spectators, or they just don't see that it's their role, their responsibility, or their connection with the greater body to do and participate in anything. Can you imagine what it would look like if the church was what the church is supposed to be? If, if the church is functioning at 50% capacity right now, all the wonderful things that the church does, and I'm not just talking about anti, I'm talking about the body of Christ, all the great things happening are only coming at a clip of 50% of our capacity. What if we were at 60? What if we're at 70? What if we're at, what if we're at 100%? I think we might have actually fulfilled the Great Commission already. No joke. You know, when Billy Graham passed away, someone actually threw out a pretty amazing statistic. They estimated Billy Graham preached to, to between 200 and 250 million people in his lifetime. Through, through TV, radio, his crusades. Somebody came up with really something really interesting. If just a slight fraction of the Christians in the world today told one person about Jesus, we would preach to more people than Billy Graham in his entire life in one day. It's there. You have one friend, you have one neighbor, and you take responsibility for them, we are done with the Great Commission. Jesus comes back. No joke. Oh, it's too, no. It's not too much. There's all kind of estimates. Let's just, let's go on the low side. There are a billion Christians in the world today. We're fastly approaching eight billion in the world. If you do, you talk to one person, you help, you disciple one person this year, another person the next year, and another person next year, we're done, three years. Why? Because they'll probably do the same, and it might even be more accelerated than that. 
Now, is this about evangelism? No, I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm talking about what it would it be like if we took Paul's words and realized he's talking about a 100% church. He's talking a church that is all in. That it's all, it's all about what we, like, well, I don't have much to offer. Oh, we all have something to offer. See, you and I have a tendency to shortchange ourselves before God ever says, oh, you're not qualified. God doesn't disqualify people. We disqualify ourselves. And that's part of the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us. You're disqualified, but not with God's Spirit. You're, you're more than qualified with God's Spirit. So let me just close with this. I just want to mention a couple of things. I just want you to imagine and hear me, because I know this is, a, I know it's going to happen. Some of you are going to feel really guilty. Please don't feel guilty, and please don't be mad at me. Get, be convicted by the Holy Spirit and get mad at Paul because he's the one that said this, okay? <laughs> but I want you to just, I know when Paul's writing this, I know what he's thinking. He knows the church of Philippi. He knows they're 100%. He knows they're all in. That's what he's describing here. So can you imagine if we were a glimpse of the church of Philippi today? That, that can you imagine what it would look like to be a part of a church where, where everybody loved everybody? And I'm not just talking about Antioch. I'm talking about every church. Can you imagine if the body of Christ actually loved each other? I don't know if the world would know what to do with us. Just picture what it would be like that every church in Simi Valley right now was not divided over style or theologies or practice, but actually said, you know what? We all love Jesus. We all want to serve Jesus. We're all going to love Jesus. We're all going to come together. And that would mean thousands of people in our city actually making a difference for Christ. It would change our city. It would change the world. Imagine being a part of a church where everyone invests themselves. Everyone. Not 50%, not 60%, but everybody is finding some place where they can invest their lives in somebody else. Whatever your gifting may be. And this is the great thing. What if everybody jumped on board and said, yeah, I want to serve, and we ran out of spots for you to serve in? We may actually start new ministries because we need more spots for people to serve in their gifting. I'm waiting for the day where Lauren walks into my office and says, you got to stop telling people to serve. we got a line of 50 people that want to work with youth, and we just, we don't have any room for them. You know, that conversation has never happened. <laughs> Although we do have some amazing people who serve our youth. We have some amazing people who are serving our kids right now. We have amazing teams in this church. we got amazing ushers that don't get credit for anything, but they serve faithfully every week. But I'll tell you, I know Alex and Eric will say amen this. We could use more ushers, right? Those guys are here every week, faithfully. 50%. What if we're 100%? Let me just a couple more things, and then I'll stop, and then you can go watch your football, basketball, whatever it is today. I know it's basketball, so anyway. But that'll be after you go to baptism, right? Anyway. What if we can imagine a church where everybody... Everybody was on mission together. There's something that happens in the church where people think that the mission of God is about gifting, calling. So that means, oh, they're the evangelist. They're the missionary. I don't have to do that. Sorry, it's not the way it works. The mission of God is for the church. That means all of us. You may not be a vocational missionary that moves to another part of the world, but you are a local missionary that lives in your neighborhood. So we play, oh, that's, that's for the evangelist. No, 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 no. 
The gift of evangelism for a person looks differently than what it was to be just a local missionary because all of us are missionaries. But imagine what our church would look like if we actually were all on mission together. Because I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, I've gotten pushback from where we do stuff for the church. Ah, that's not for me. That doesn't work. And usually that comes from people who aren't doing anything. Then go do it better. Go find the person that you don't know and help lead them to Christ. Go reach our city. Go care for the poor. Go do it. But if you're not doing it, then get on board with what God's doing here. I'm going to be really honest right now. Just We have the potential to change the world. And the only thing that holds us back is a lack of unity. That's all. It isn't the government. It isn't even the devil. The devil can't withstand the church. He can't. Because who is the head of the church? Jesus, who died on the cross and paid for our sin and took care of death and did all the things that we're going to talk about in the next couple weeks with Easter. And he did it, why? To set his church on fire to change the world. We could do this. And this is the passion that I have that I talk about and then I get people pushing back on me. And just, you know, I'm going to push back hard. Because there's a city that we live in that needs Jesus. And instead of saying, I don't do laundry love, oh my gosh, I'm so tired of that. I'm just being honest. I have talked with more non-believers in laundry love than I have in any other place in our city. I've talked to more diversity in laundromats than anywhere in our city. It's like, it does work. You know why? Because it's about people. And if you show up to love people, it's success. And let Jesus just going to do, I'm sorry I'm on a soapbox, but I get passionate about this. I see the potential of what God could do if the church becomes alive again. And if we'll get together, there will be maybe, we're talking 2,000 years, and we're still talking about the church at Philippi. 2,000 years, they're long gone, and we're still talking about them. What if 100 years from now, when all of us are gone, there's a group of people somewhere saying, yeah, that Antioch church in Simi Valley, Something happened there, and the city changed. And the other churches, we all came together, and something changed. And because of them, now something's happening on the other side of the world. Yeah, that church at Antioch, something happened there. We're still talking about them. Make it happen. But you and I have to be willing to be all in. Invest, serve, love, be concerned for each other, be concerned for the world, and do what God has called us to do. We can do this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we conclude today, you envisioned a church that not only, Lord, not in its destructive power, but Lord, in its redemptive power, you envisioned a church that was an army. And that is that every person was committed to your purpose in their lives, to your purpose in the world. So Lord, I pray that right now that you would ignite our souls because your spirit lives inside of us. Lord, it's the same spirit that raised you from the dead, lives in us and gives us the ability to change the world around us. But Lord, I know it starts with us. And so Lord, I pray that right now in this room, I pray for our church family where there is division based on personal offense or broken relationships, I pray that you would bring reconciliation, that you would bring forgiveness, that you would bring mercy and compassion for us, Lord. If there are those of us who are here and we have been discouraged unintentionally by others, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would change that dynamic so that we would now be encouraged to move forward. Lord, if we have walked through difficult times and we have waited for someone to come along, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to look to those who are struggling and those who need help and that, Lord, we would collectively come together and help each other. So, Lord, that as we move forward, not only would the world feel the impact of what we are accomplishing in your mission, but, Lord Jesus, most importantly, the world would look at the church 
and say that's what it's supposed to be like. That, Lord, that what we experience as brothers and sisters in you would be so desirable by the world that people would choose to investigate who you are because what you've done in us because we've learned to actually love each other and be in unity. So, Lord Jesus, give us the courage to live in unity, to live that out in your name, Lord.